Welcome to Last Ones at the Bar. Once again, it's the movement to move with when it comes to your needs in the sport of boxing. My name is Wilton Henry. My name is Daniel Lee. And my name is Lavelle Jackson. And shout out to my uh, twin sister, Chanel. You know, a great boxing fan, just like myself. She's probably listening, been marketing uh, our show outside in, in Michigan. So shout out to her. Yeah, shout out to you, Chanel. Hopefully you enjoy the show. Um, today, what we're going to do is we got more questions for you that we're going to answer. Um, before we get started, man, you know, this is, we back recording on Thursday. Um, the last couple episodes we recorded on the weekend. Um, busy week for me. Um, how's everything going with you, fellas? Oh, man, uh, having a busy week also, you know, how, how it is, especially on holiday weekends, uh, you try to cram a lot of work uh, inside, of uh, you know, a three-day with a three-day weekend. You know, you want to you rush all the work, you know, and it's it can it can be tiring. But you know, I'm energized, ready to talk some boxing. I've been talking boxing, and you know, at work too. They they got me out of my shell, and you know, uh, so shout out to to a lot of my coworkers that got me involved in a uh, Mike Tyson, Roy Jones uh, debate, so. <laughs> yeah, man, it's been a week for me, too. I was actually going to come up y'all way this weekend, but um, at the beginning of the week, I was thinking that these last two days, my body has sort of been like, yeah, you might need to sit down somewhere. So I'm probably going to just, you know, lay low this weekend. Looking forward to that, to that three-day weekend, nice little yeah, break. Yeah, man, even though it's been a busy week, you know, we got to give the people what they want. Uh, I've been on Zoom meeting after Zoom meeting. You know, I don't even want to he- hear the word Zoom. I don't want to hear any <laughs> words that start with the letter Z. You know, I just get angry, frustrated. But, again, we got to give the people what they want. So today we're going to, uh, like I said, have more questions that we're going to answer. And for this session, I'm going to kick it over to Danny. Um, you're going to provide us with the questions that we're going to answer for today. Am I correct? That's correct. So uh, we're going to start with a little bit more of the what, what's happening in boxing today. And so to start it off, um, earlier this week, or late last week, Deontay Wilder, as we all know, and for the listeners who may not be aware, um, at some point in the future, we don't have a date yet, but at some point in the future, he has that trilogy fight with Tyson Fury. So leading up to that, he fired his longtime trainer, uh, Mark Breland. Uh, do you guys have any thoughts on, on that? It's kind of, I mean, I imagine they were in camp already or, or at least close to it. So it's kind of an abrupt change for, you know, if you've been a fighter for that long, he's been training for that long. What do you guys think? Well, I kind of had a feeling that, that, that was going to happen. It's been in the air. Uh, they've been talking about it for a few months, especially after that, that uh, second fight um, that Wilder had with Fury. Uh, you know, we know Wilder was not happy with Breland um, stopping the fight and throwing in a towel. Um, but in, in my opinion, I think Breland is the one who, who probably brought Wilder, you know, as far as he could. Of course, we know Wilder has, you know, uh, this God-given power. But I think it was partly Breland that that probably made him exceed his, his you know, whatever skill level that he had. And, and I also think that, you know, Breland is one of the best amateur uh, boxers ever. Um, so so he can probably, uh, if he can transfer that to his training, I think Wilder has a lot to learn from him still, you know. Uh, 
Breland had a great jab when he was active. Uh, Wilder really needs to work on his jab. So uh, I, th- I don't think it was a good look. Uh, yeah, I don't think it's a good look for, for Wilder. Uh, I don't know who Wilder is going to find who's going to refine his skill as as much. Um, but that's just my opinion. Yeah, I, I got much respect for the bronze bomber. Um, and, you know, as a man, you know, you make a decision. And I, I, I can just tell that, you know, he wanted to go out on his shield. And they probably had an agreement where he wanted to go out on his shield. And the fact that Breland broke that covenant that they had, he feel betrayed. So, you know, you got to make do the best what you for your career, you know, at the end of the day. And for what I would like him to see, I, I, personally, you know, it's his decision. You know what I mean? It's his career. I would like for him to have kept Breland. But again, he feels betrayed, I, I'm sure. But if he kept Breland and then he could have added somebody who can give him a little bit more sauce or give him a little bit more um, skills that's going to enhance what he already does. And so I was just thinking about who could he actually incorporate into his camp or get in his camp now that could actually do that. And the first I was thinking about Sugar Hill over there, um, Emmanuel Stewart's nephew, (laughs) Emmanuel Stewart's um, nephew over at the Crunk. But I think he's already working with Tyson Fury. So that would be um, something that couldn't be a possibility. And then Jonathan Banks comes to me, uh, comes to mind too, because he was working with Vladimir Klitschko and he's out the Crunk as well. And I don't know if they want to um, have different fighters that, I don't know what the relationship is between Jonathan Banks and Sugar Hill out there. So that would be the person I would think ideally. Um, but I, I don't know where he would go from here because the other guys that are, I would consider to be good trainers, I don't see them. Um, well, I, I rarely see them working with big guys. And so I know that that's like Jonathan Banks. That's his signature because he learned a lot from Emmanuel Stewart. So where does he go? I don't know. I'm interested. I'm interested to see. Yeah. You said one of the things that I was going to say, I, so I think he made two mistakes here. First mistake was if you're going to fire him, like fire him like right away so you can, you don't have to search, you know, three, four months out from your fight. So the fight was in what, February. And so, you know, we have February through October that, you know, he's still on board. And then just out of nowhere, he he's out of there. So that was mistake number one to me. Mistake number two was, like like you guys said, let him go at this point. If it were me, um, I would have done pretty much what you said. Well, I would have kept him as maybe like a, you know, in the corner and then have like maybe a new lead trainer. And so you could have those two perspectives because now you have Fury that may be looking, you know, rumor has that I don't think it's official yet, but, you know, Fury is looking to hire Breland. And it's like, okay, the guy that has pretty much – I wouldn't say he raised him, but he's kind of been there the whole time. Like his, your day one trainer is going to be in what is the biggest fight of your your life at this point. Because um, you know, if you lose if you lose the second one, then like, where do you go? You know, I mean, he, this place is going to go. But at any rate, um, you know, your day one is in your opponent's corner now. Is where I'm getting it. So I just don't think it was wise of him to do for for those reasons. Um, but I think we kind of exhausted that topic. But moving on, former light heavyweight champion Sergey Kovalev is, just got sentenced to three years probation 
So in 2018, he was out with a woman in, at Big Bear in California, Big Bear Lake. And um, according to the woman, they they kissed and they they got friendly. But once she didn't want to go any further, uh, he became violent. Apparently, he took her dog. Apparently, he struck her. And so you know that there's been the ruling and. In addition to having to complete anger management and um, serving two days in prison, which he's done already, um, he has three years of probation. Does anybody want to add to that or any additional thoughts? Um, with Kovalev, we've heard about all his struggles, you know, outside the ring, which which it seems he's had more struggles outside the ring, more battles and fights outside the ring than inside the ring. He had problems with, you know, alcohol and domestic violence and even, you know, his, his sharp tongue has, has got him in trouble with, you know, certain uh, ethnicities. Um, at this point, it's, it's like I wish him the best. I hope that he can get his life together. You know, it, it, it almost seems like it's a train wreck, like it's, you know, a, a car crash waiting to happen. And um I wish him the best. I wish he can get all his stuff situated and get his life back together because his career is pretty much winding down and he pretty much his outside ring struggle has, you know, shortened his career in my opinion. Uh, really, you know, that's, that's like a personal thing. So I really don't have too much to say about that. You know, I exclusively talk about boxing, whether or not the man is going to win, whether or not he's going to lose. Um, if some of those outside factors play into his performance, then I'll discuss that. But the uh, only thing I'll say is if it did happen, I'm not surprised just based on his previous behavior. Yeah, I wasn't super surprised either based on what I understand about him at least. And, you know, again, like you said, it's personal. Um, but but really, I think he kind of got off easy. You, you have felony charges. And you get three years of probation. You know, that sounds like kind of, I mean, I imagine that happens. But, you know, I, based on just knowing that information and not knowing the outcome, I would have thought there would have been more jail time involved. So, you know, he kind of got off easy there. But uh, staying in the light heavyweight division, uh, Dimitri Bivol has said that he's open to facing better BF. He's open to facing Canelo. He's open to facing Benavidez. You guys have any thoughts on any potential uh, any potential smoke there? Well, what I will say about that situation is I like that in him, that he's willing to fight the best fighters out there. Those are the best fighters in those um, perspective, respective divisions. And so I like that in him. Um, who would I would prefer him to fight? I would like to see him fight uh, the, light, the light heavyweight champ. Um, because of the fact that that's where he has his title. And so I don't want him to go down in weight and things like that. I just want him to take care of business in the division that he's in. And that's just a rule of thumb for me just in general. If he wins the fight um, at light heavyweight, then I wouldn't mind seeing him, you know, fight another fighter at a smaller weight if it's going to, you know, increase his pockets or income. But who I would like for him to fight the light heavyweight champ. Yeah, I think all those fights are, are good fights for him. Um, of course, that we, we've been wanting to see. Um, but I'm, I'm also a firm believer, as I believe it when the, the contract is signed. Um, 
Bill says he's open. I mean, what does open really mean? Is it do you do we want to face those guys? Is he just considering facing those guys or what? You no know, fighters will say a lot of things. Um, do I personally believe he wants to? Sure, but I, I'll believe it when those fights are signed. It's like for now, to me, it's just you know a uh, little bit of positive talk. I, I will reserve any real statements until. You know, an actual fight out of this pool of, of people to sign. Um, but I mean, I guess anything, if nothing else, I can take that it's a positive that he, you know he's at least willing to fight. He doesn't seem to at this point um, want to avoid you know some of the top people in his division because you know for a while in the last decade, you know that's kind of what was happening. You know, the two top people in that division didn't fight each other. And that kind of was unfortunate. But um, moving forward, so we have a potential fight that uh, has not been named yet, but um, Charlo just fought a few weeks ago and looked pretty good against Devrianchenko. Um, Canelo is still going through his his issues with Golden Boy, his issues with the zone. Uh, he does not have a fight coming up. Um, it has been said that it's possible for Canelo Alvarez and for Charlo to face off in 2021. Um, Charlo's trainer has said that they can pick whatever weight class and they'll, they'll do it. They can do 168, they can do 175, but they want to make it happen. Uh, what, how do you guys feel about that? You, uh, Canelo's gonna fight Charlo. I'm telling you, because uh, Canelo has an ego. He knows the words that are being spoken out there that he needs to fight an Andrade or he needs to fight Charlo. He knows that. He hears it. Canelo is, like I said, he has an ego. It, when Laro was calling him out, you know, he didn't fight him out the gate. He waited a little bit and then he took on a challenge. People were saying he was scared of Triple G. Waited a little bit. You know, made money here and there fought fights that would put him in a better position to beat Triple G. Like, he took the fight at 168 against um, Chavez Jr. just to fight a bigger guy. And then he went and fought Triple G. He's just waiting around. You know what I mean? He's making his money, you know, and, and, and things like that. But that heart that he has and that ego that he has, it's going to force him to fight Charlo. What he's going to do, knowing his temperament and knowing his history, He's just waiting to figure out which weight class would be he would have the biggest advantage. And I'm thinking that he would take the fight at 168. Only reason is is because Charlo has never fought at 168, and he has. So he has some more – he's more comfortable at that weight than Charlo would be. So I'm assuming that that fight is going to take place mm-hmm. sometime in 2021. Book it. <laughs> um. Just like the the last topic, uh, for this fight, I'll believe it when it's signed. Um, do I believe Canelo wants to fight Charlo? Of course. I think Canelo is a dog. I mean, I think he's one of the uh, – as far as um, top fighters, I can even say that he's kind of underrated because really he is, in my opinion, pound for pound number one fighter. You know, he just has that one loss to Floyd Mayweather sure it, how, how his promoter feels about it but there were rumors you know a while back that they did offer charlo uh the canelo fight and he turned down an offer you know we know i don't know what that offer was i the promoter 
lucrative. We don't know what lucrative is, but being that, you know, Canelo is the cash cow, I'm pretty sure they offered Charlo probably more than what he probably was making at that point. It's almost like if, you know, uh, a cash cow like Mayweather or Pacquiao, you know, asks for a fight, asks you for a fight, you're going to take it, you know. Uh, even if they, if they can they can make 40 million, you can make two, three million, but that's two, three million more than what you were making. So um, I believe this fight when I see it. Um, I think Charlo does want this fight deep down. I think he, he wants to prove himself. Uh, but I think I, I kind of have a hint that Canelo is the type of guy who looks at fighters and, want, and probably wants the scout more. Uh, but we'll see what happens within the, uh, the next year. Yeah, I don't see I don't see why it wouldn't happen. I, I think it's just a matter of time. Um, you know, Charlo has been building his name up, you know, since moving up in the middleweight division. He looked good last fight, and you know, he's willing to move up again in order to get this fight, which would for sure be the biggest payday of his career. And and well, you said this in a previous episode, but man, that fight in Texas would be crazy. You know what I mean? Like, so it's like it, it's, it it would solve so many problems because you know like if if the zone if the issue with the zone is they want him to fight you know a certain caliber of fighter well boom there you have it like okay let's let's resolve that let's get this show on the road let's name a Charlo fight Charlo's gonna be ready and so um, I think it doesn't matter of time personally um, again like you said Vel you never really know until it's actually signed but it, it just seems all but inevitable at this point. Regardless of what weight class, I can see it happening at 168 as well. Um, it would be on brand for Canelo to do something like that, and I wouldn't blame him, frankly. But um, that's the scenario I could see in in twenty in twenty twenty one. So um, moving down a bit in the weight class, as you know, last week uh, the Terence Crawford and the Kel Brook fight was named. And it was official. And it's coming up next month. Now, Crawford has been under fire for not really having so for being near the top of his division, but not really having that marquee win like some of the others on the other side of the street, so to speak, at the top of the division. Um, so that kind of begs the question: Is his promoter doing what they should? Are they doing everything they can? Uh, so what do you guys think? You guys think he should leave top rank or what, what, what would be the remedy for this? The answer to that question. Very simple. Should he leave top rank? Yes, definitely. All of the good fighters that works away are at, are with PBC. Spence, Pacquiao, Garcia, Thurman, Porter. All of those guys have somehow, some way, most of them have fought, you know, one another, um, and so by him going over to PBC, what that would do is that would eliminate barriers to getting those fights made. Also, it, it, for the fans, you would get the fights that you want to see. And then I would think if you get a couple of those guys on your resume, that would increase his profits. And so he would make more money. So it's just a win-win-win situation if he goes over there. Um, I don't see any reason not to. Um, because again, just the potential of you increasing your income and your legacy, um, that's more than enough reasons to go and, and, and sign over there. 
to me, you know, I, I don't I don't see what the holdup is if you really want to make those fights. I have to agree with Will. I, I do believe he should go if he needs because he needs those legacy fights and all those fighters, unless he's going to move up or move down. All, all of the fights is going to make him it will be at PBC unless, you know, top rank can work that out where, the, where those fights do happen. But at the same time, uh, I don't fought him, you know, for staying simply because, you know, top rank was the, the promoter that, you know, they discovered him, you know, especially at a time when his career got started, you know, you don't get the choice of who you want to sign with. Not all the time, unless you're some hot, you know, amateur like, you know, Shakur Stevenson or something. Uh, Terrence Crawford really wasn't like a, he wasn't Olympian or anything like that. Um, so when it came time to, for uh, promoters to, you know, sign fighters, um, top rank picked them up. Uh, and, and, and we don't know how that went or, or, or who had an opportunity, but I can say that other probably didn't see him, you know, as worthy of a contract at that particular time. And, and especially when it when you compare top rank to let's say uh, when Al Heyman was working with Golden Boy, they thought Adrian Broner would be a bigger star and and be that guy versus Terrence Crawford, and and those two guys did you know turn pro at the same time. So it's like there, like you thought those guys were better than me. Look at me, I'm over here, you know. So I don't know, but if I were I would leave, I would, what I would do is probably probably take work my rework my contract where I can take two fights and fight for PBC. You know, take two legacy fights and go back to top rank. Um, I believe the, the, these things can be done. I'm not, I'm not I don't know the business of boxing as, as much as those promoters, but the fans been been wanting these fights, and it's, it's no excuse that they can't happen. Even if they were different, even even if they're with different promoters. I don't, promoters can't work together. I mean, that's not, I mean, we've seen Don King work with everyone. So PBC and top rank can't work with each other and make these fights happen. They're not going to do it. Let me ask you a question over there real quick. So let me ask you this. Let's say, for instance, Bob Arum, um, you know, let's say, for instance, he was trying to get some boxing on. um, So he works pretty much with HBO. Right. What if Showtime said that, oh, no, nah, if you we got we want we want top rank over here, we're going to give you way more money than what HBO is giving. You think Bob Aram is going to be like, no, nah, they, they're loyal to me. So I'm going to stay over here at HBO. Uh, I mean, Bob Aram is in the business of, of, of boxing, but at the same time, he's not into the. <laughs> He legacy doesn't doesn't follow Bob Arum, but legacy will follow someone like Terrence Crawford, though. So, no, that's not. But I'm saying that, that's not my question. My question is, if HBO mm-hmm. is not willing to issue out money to top rank that Bob Arum is looking for, or even if they are, but Showtime has a lot more money that they're willing to give him. Do you think HBO? I mean, Bob Arum is going to stay with HBO? just based on the fact that they were loyal to him at first and they're the ones who, um, you know, helped them 
you know, start top rank over there? You think he's just gonna be well? Loyal well, to HBO them? folded anyway, so I, I believe it's it's more so between ESPN and Showtime. And uh, if Showtime if Showtime okay. is gonna provide more money, I believe Bob Aaron probably would. You know, he wouldn't be. I'm not sure if he'd be loyal to ESPN, but a lot of that's based on those contracts. I don't know how those contracts are written. I'm pretty sure. No, 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 no. no. I, I'm not. I'm not even talking about the just cut out okay. all of that. I'm just saying. Okay, let's 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 go ESPN. All right. So mm-hmm. they work with ESPN. ESPN is not willing to. Um, it's it's just a certain cap that they're going to give him money on, and so but Showtime or whatever network they say, no, we got more money for you over here, Mr. Aaron. Uh, do you think Bob Aaron would not take that deal over at Showtime, HBO, or whoever it is that's giving him more money than, than ESPN? Without contract, he would go over to Showtime, yes. Okay. So that's what I think Terrence Crawford should do. You know what I mean? Because you got all of those fighters over there. You put him with Spence. You put him with Garcia. You put him with uh, Thurman. Like, those are big money fights. You know what I'm saying? So he And he had that opportunity a couple of years ago, but he re-signed with top rank. You know, so that's the only thing that I'm saying, man. Like, if if that's what it's about in terms of you being loyal to somebody because they uh, show interest to you at first, that's not going to do anything for your family as you retire and stuff like that. Like, you got to look out for like, number one first. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, I, I agree with that. I agree. I agree. He should leave. I'd say that it's almost like. The 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 Alicia Keys A Marie situation where Def Jam thought A Marie would be a bigger star than Alicia Keys. Oh, Alicia Keys, I was like, man, I'm not going to Def Jam. That's an insult to me. I'm way more talented than that, you know. But I I do agree. If 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 Crawford really wants those fights, he at one point at some point he will have to deal with PPC or leave for PPC. And he should, and what he should do is put pressure on Bob Aram to make those fights happen, regardless. You know? right, now, that, see, I, I totally agree. And the other thing is, is when you have a promoter like that, they take about 30% out your purse. You know what I'm saying? So that's another thing to take into consideration. I just don't see the benefit of him being over there at top rank like that because I don't see like your everyday average boxing fan. I know the boxing circles. People know who Terrence Crawford is, but I think he can be a much even bigger name. He can um, create, generate more revenue and income for himself if he goes over there, because that's where all the action is. I mean, he could, but it's kind of a, well, it's kind of a moot point because he did resign, and we don't, and that, that's you know pretty much done now. I mean, he's with top rank, so uh, he has to ride. He has to deal with the, the choice he made, and if that means he. Has Exactly. He has to put that pressure on Aaron. That's the only way it's going to happen. Yeah, and I, I just don't see him doing it. Like it just seemed like he's content with where he is. And but as as far as is it being a moot point, we kind of knew what was going to happen once he resigned. You knew it was going to be like a stagnation that was going to take place where you weren't going to get the fights that you wanted to see because top rank typically does that. That's why all of those guys left. Mikey Garcia. Floyd Mayweather, eventually Mackie, Manny Pacquiao, like they, Cotto, like all of those guys leave from over there because it's only going to be a limit on what it is, their potential income. And so they leave there to get more money, to get more recognition. It's because it's, it's just like how um, Wilder and the Breland situation, it's not um, money per se, it's more so that you got me to a certain point and now I can't really grow anymore, you know? 
And so I, I look at it the same way. But I hear what you're saying. And so I don't really know what to tell him at this point. Like, if, if, if he didn't see the writing on the wall in 2018, if he didn't see the writing on the wall a month ago when they were – they were struggling to get Kale Brook or however that process was going. Like he's 32 right now. All the gray matter in his brain. I wouldn't say all of it, but you can't make the excuse that you was young and dumb no more. We, we grown at this point. At this point, you got your management, you got your people, people in the corner, but you have to be held accountable for the decision you make for your career. And he's made his bed. So now he got to lie in it. However, that look, plays out for him. Remains to be seen. All right, so moving back up to the heavyweight division. So we have two young up-and-coming fighters from the UK, and I'm actually looking at, at our podcast analytics now. So shout-out UK, shout-out to Ireland, shout-out to Germany even. We have listeners in, in all three of those countries, even though Germany's not really on an island, but whatever. So we have Joe Joyce and we have Daniel Dubois, who are scheduled to fight November 28th. Um... Have you guys been following them? What What do you guys – you guys got any predictions? How you see this maybe shaking out? I've seen Dubois before. And honestly, I think I, – I, when I did see him, I think he's a, a probably a, – he's getting more hype than uh, Afia Jabba. I saw – I seen from Afia Jabba. You know, we see Afia Jabba. He, I'm kind of a little bit high on him too, but he's – but even recently, he on as much. Uh, Dubois stick to his game plan again. I haven't seen uh Joyce, these are two, they're risking it all. I mean, they're risking their potential fame, which is commendable, you know, it's very, very commendable. Uh, I'm not as familiar with these two gentlemen as I should. I will actually tune in and see, I want to see what's going to happen. Yeah, based on my knowledge of the fellas, uh, I know that they two big guys. Um, Joyce is a lot younger. He's 23. Um, and then, uh, I mean, Dubois is 23. Joyce is 35. Uh, they're very, you know, early in their careers to be fighting. One is 15 and 0. The other one is 11 and 0. Um, based on what I've seen so far, though, uh, Dubois looks like he could possibly be something. Like, he can be in the mix with some of those upper echelon guys like a Joshua, like a, a Wilder, um, based on that speed and that punch and power, he looks pretty good to me, but he's been fighting limited opposition. And then Joyce, I don't, you know, and, and I don't want to be disrespectful to any boxer, but he just looks slow, you know, and he throws a lot of wide punches. I I, I don't, you know, I think that, put it like this, I'm, I'm going to be quick with it. I just think that um, Dubois, his punches are much more straighter. He's uh, quicker, uh, faster, like his, um, I think he's going to he's gonna win us in relatively easy fashion. Yeah, I've seen a little bit of the two. And, you know, Joyce is by far older. He started his career later. But I just kind of like I knew him by name first, and then when I saw him fight, I was just kind of like, "Oh well, you know, this is this is a guy here." You know what I mean? Like I wasn't necessarily wild, and not to say that that could be improved upon, or not to say that that can't be improved upon. Um, but from what I saw from Dubois, I I could see more of an upside coming from him, and so 
either way, I'll be tuning in. I'm excited to see some questions be answered about both of these guys, you know? But um, other than that, all right, so, fellas, kind of getting out of the, the current realm of boxing and just talking boxing in general, right? So towards the end of Mayweather's career, Floyd Mayweather Jr., um, there was all this talk about, you know, solving the May Vinci code. Like, how do you beat Floyd Mayweather Jr.? De La Hoya claimed to have had the blueprint and had laid it out, but nobody could really do anything with this this blueprint that he claimed to have. So, so is there a May Vinci code to solve? Is it solvable? Like, could anybody have done that? How, how would how would you even go about solving that? Or if you're a trainer in somebody's corner, how how do you employ? what you think needs to be done in order to beat Floyd Mayweather Jr.? I, I think it's um, a couple things that you can attempt to do. Um, with Floyd, I don't really see too many guys that's his size that was going to beat him. Uh, it would be have to be somebody that's like a, at a higher had a higher weight and then also someone um, like, you know how you just move up and that's just, you moved up too many weight classes. That's one way. Um, the other way, and this is just I wouldn't count on these things happening, but if this would happen, this is how he could have been defeated. And that's obviously somebody just with some heavy hands and then they just land that right punch, kind of like Mosley, but it really was a little bit, just a little bit more on it where it just laid him flat out. Um, so that's one way. Another way I see could possibly, if, if it was going to go a decision or a late stoppage, it could have been somebody who implored the style of like a Madonna that, unconventional style where you don't know where the punches are coming. Um, but they also had to have that pressure of Castillo. So those are the two guys who gave him like his toughest matches uh, with the exception of Emmanuel Augustus too, who had kind of had a herky jerky style. And then, um, so that's, that's way number two, somebody who, who had those couple attributes in there, and they can rough them up a little bit, but they have to be able to sustain it for a whole full 12 rounds. Cause I even think Hatton was giving them a little bit of trouble, but he was able to figure Hatton out. Um, but he didn't have the other elements. He just had that pressure, that constant pressure. And then the other way, I just never saw Floyd fight somebody who was a pure boxer. I never saw him fight a Lara before, you know what I'm saying? So if he could, if he fought somebody like that, who wasn't willing to engage and was a counter puncher themselves, and kind of like stayed at a distance and jab. I don't know how Floyd would respond to that. They say that once he's in the gym, he fights a different way than he does inside the ring. Maybe he would implore that style to defeat that type of opponent. So a pure boxer, but the pure boxer would have to be a boxer who doesn't have lapses. You know, like Amir Khan, he'll be out boxing somebody. The next thing you know, he gets caught. So you, you can't have that wrinkle in your game. So I think those are the three ways that Floyd could have possibly been beat. Yeah, those are uh, good answer. Um, I had to break mine up, and because I think what you need to to, to beat Floyd, you need a, a ingredients of things. You need uh, a bunch of things. You don't need just one thing. And you know, when Oscar say he had you know the formula, what have you, Oscar may have one piece. He just never had the other pieces. He had maybe one little piece on that's falls on my list. But it's interesting that none of the fighters that he was saying could beat Floyd had any of those ingredients. Uh, so when I look at that, I look at 
uh, mental, you know, I, I broke it to physical attributes and style. The mental, you have to, you know, be versatile. You have to be someone who trains hard. Just like what we said, you got you have to be someone who don't have mental lapses. Uh, Floyd's the type of fighter. Sometimes he'll he'll lure you to sleep and, and trick you into to thinking that everything's okay and start hitting you with counters, hit you with right hands. You can't. You have to be uh, focused. And some fighters will overfocus where they you know tie themselves out mentally. You have to be mentally strong, mentally able to take a Floyd Mayweather type pressure. You know, not like a pressure fighter, but Floyd is giving you a lot of mental pressure physical attributes um you need someone in my opinion that's a, a little bit that's taller longer a longer fighter you know a, a taller longer fighter who who uh a strong fighter you know someone who can push floyd back when it when when they, they have to but also someone who can move when they have to you have to be able to show floyd different things be able to, to get him thinking more the style uh you have to be jab heavy you have to uh know how to jab um, a lot of, it's, it's almost like it's a lost art today where fighters don't really work on that jab a lot or have a strong jab. Uh, I saw De La Hoya did have a strong jab. He just didn't have any, a lot, he was missing a lot of other ingredients. Um, we even saw Cotto was able to hit Floyd and give Floyd trouble with that jab. I mean, it, I mean, he was hitting him sharp with, with that one jab, but he didn't have the other ingredients. You got to have, uh, be jab heavy. You know, you got to have boxing ability. You have to be able to to brawl when you need to, and and, and um, um, brawl when you need to, and box when you need to. Um, I think some fighters may have some of these things on his list, but it's hard to define all of them. Now, are there fighters that have all of these things? Of course. I think um, Tommy Hearns has always been, a, uh, in my opinion, just a, a horrible style for Floyd to have to overcome because he eventually uh, Floyd will have to brawl with. with and that's almost like suicide. And I think Floyd only has two choices, whether either to brawl with him or fall to a shell because Tommy Hearns very, very rarely gets outboxed. Uh, and I think I thought Sugar Ray Leonard had a, a style that would be interesting to give Floyd different looks because Sugar Ray is another fighter who can, can do it all. And believe it or not, today, even I look at uh, a fighter like Errol Spence, ingredients that would I believe would give Floyd trouble, you know, being bigger, being able to use the size, and also being able to move when necessary. Um, so it, it, it's many ways to, to skin a cat. I think a lot of fighters don't really have all of those things together. And, and Floyd's an old school fighter, and I think it would take another old school fighter to do that. A lot of fighters aren't old school. And I think that that a testament to how dedicated Floyd himself actually is. Yeah, you guys covered a lot of what I probably would have said. Um, like you guys touched on natural abilities, and and I remember specifically back when ESPN they used to do the sports science on, you know, on elite athletes, and I believe it was leading up to the Mayweather-Pacquiao fight, and they were comparing his sort of reaction speed to that of a rattlesnake, and. His reaction speed was actually quicker than a rattlesnake's. I don't remember the the specific like point, whatever, whatever of a second, but I remember him actually saying that his was quicker than a rattlesnake. So like, in addition to the training that you got to put in, like, you have to be able to overcome. You have to have the natural abilities to overcome his natural abilities, and you have to just be adaptable in the ring because you know he's he's out he's thinking. He takes his craft serious. He's put the work in on top of his God-given abilities. 
And so you just have to have those those attributes that are better than his. You got to think one step ahead, really. Um, but other than that, I don't really have anything else to add other than what you guys have said. Um, let's switch over to fighters who were unbeatable in their prime. When you think of fighters who were unbeatable in their prime, uh, who comes to mind? Well, personally, I don't believe in unbeatable fighters per se. My father used to always say someone who's unbeatable is someone who doesn't fight a lot. Uh, and I think that's, you know, uh, not saying that fighters can't look ex- you know, ex- extraordinary. I, actually, I have one in particular that's in mind. But I think that the more you fight, the more someone you're going to get someone, and the more people you fight, the more chances you're going to get someone who just has that equation. I mean, boxing is about equations and what it takes to beat someone. And eventually you're going to run into that equation that cancel yours out um and we've seen that you know with, with uber talents like you know sugar ray robinson henry armstrong those guys in history uh, willie peps those guys are got who, who really is, if you put them in a in, in certain more modern area eras they would look unbeatable they would pretty much be unbeatable but because they fought so often you know uh they had they had those losses or even when you look at boxing history before that when guys were fighting like 25 round fights 40 50 round fights i mean sooner or later you will be beaten no matter how unbeatable you you are um but if there if i had to pick a fighter that that i thought looked unbeatable hands down roy jones jr when i I watch roy jones jr it's like watching magic it's like watching lightning It's, it's it's I don't think we're. I don't think there's. I, I'm hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think I'm ever going to see a talent like that in my lifetime again. Uh, Roy Jones had it all. He can do things that I, I still haven't seen many uh, fighters do. He was faster than a lot of guys who's a lot smaller than he was, and he can he can crack. Um, Roy Jones is just something else. So that's if I had to choose one fighter, I thought looked unbeatable in their prime. It's definitely Roy Jones. Yeah, some people say that. Some people say there's never never was a horse that couldn't be rode and never was a man who couldn't be thrown. So, you know, a lot of people feel like that there's fighters who um, there's always somebody out there that can defeat them. Um, but if there's anybody that I've seen, and Roy comes to mind, uh, at, at one point I, I thought that, like when I, was, I went to go see him, and I mentioned this in another podcast, when I went to go see him fight in 19... Um, I know it's June 5th or so. It was either 2000 or 1999. He was fighting Reggie Johnson and that version of him, he looked unbeatable. Now, the reason why I didn't choose him is because later on seeing him get knocked out and even not too long after that fight that he had against Johnson, he was knocked down against, um, it wasn't Telesco, it was the guy that he used to spar with, the left-handed opponent that he had. And that was it was either on my birthday, it was around that time. I remember we had a family reunion at Albuquerque. I was checking that fight out in my room. Um, so that's the only thing about Floyd is if somebody, even as talented as he was, as quick as he was, with the reflexes and everything that he had, that if you could have ever even just got lucky and tapped that chin, that you might have got lucky that day. You know what I'm saying? So I, I didn't choose him, but he's somebody that I thought about seriously um, in answering this question. But the person who I think that... Um, was the most or the closest to being unbeatable 
was Muhammad Ali. And I'm talking about Muhammad Ali in 1966. The, after he won the, the fight uh, with Liston to get the belt, I don't think that was Ali actually at his best, at his peak, because I think he had to beat Liston to know that he was actually that good. Although he was talking the way he was talking, you still have to do it. And a lot of times when people win the championship, like the couple of fights after that, that's when you see them blossom into their peak. You know, they have that confidence. They know that they can go 12 rounds. They know that they can fight at the elite level. And then they can work on different things to even be, become better. So when you fast forward to 1966, there's a fight with Muhammad Ali versus Cleveland Williams. I've never seen anybody do some of the stuff I saw that man doing in the ring. The movement that he had just... You weren't even going to get close to him. He can box you. He, he was um, throwing some power shots, and he just left Cleveland. Poor Cleveland Williams just looked bad. Cleveland Williams was a good fighter. And so when I looked at that fight, it lasted three rounds, but I saw more boxing in that three rounds um, than the entire heavyweight division of today combined. You know what I'm saying? Like, just in that three rounds, if you get a chance, if you haven't seen it, please watch the Muhammad Ali versus Cleveland Williams and tell me, that um, he's not the closest thing to being unbeatable. And the things that he's doing, you can't teach that. <laughs> you can't teach that stuff to somebody. Nobody can just pick that up. Go ahead and move around the ring like that. Be able to just slip punches and move backwards where, you know, the punches like two, three inches away from you. And those reflexes and the movement, the poetry and motion. So to me, the 1966 version of Muhammad Ali, that's the closest thing that you're going to get to being unbeatable. And the other thing I want to say, man, see these topics right here. I'm a huge boxing fan. I grew up watching the sport and I was glued to the screen. It was always like the big fights. I never missed them. You know what I'm saying? And we always talked about it. In my family, we talked about the big fights. We looking forward. Our whole day was, or, or week and month was surrounded about the big fight that was coming up. I honestly think you guys are more uh, bigger boxing fans now uh, than I am. Because some of the fights that I see, I don't even really like, I watch them. You know, these supposed to be the top upper echelon guys, and I just don't think that they are cut from the same cloth as the guys that um, of the past. So I just want to throw that out there, too. I just felt the need to say that. No, that's fair. That's fair. Because, um, you know, it's fresh and new for me, so I, I could definitely see, you know, for you, you know, it kind of being that way. Um, as for my answer, I kind of got to go with the low-hanging fruit, especially seeing as how um, I haven't been a boxing fan as long as you guys. But um, and you mentioned his name already, and we kind of we are already kind of talked about him. But I kind of have to go with the guy that you know wasn't beat. You know, I got to go with, with Floyd Mayweather Jr. And like, do I think that it's possible that he could have been beaten? Beaten? Uh, yeah, hundred percent. But you know, simple math. He, you know, the guy won. I'm not gonna count that 50, but the guy went 49 and 0. He went without losing a fight, and so, uh, for me, it would be it would have been hard for me to really go back in time and like, you know, watch a ton of old fights to come to a consensus. You know, my own consensus. You know, but I just felt like the 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 record doesn't lie there. You know what I mean? But uh, as we transition on, um, we have another best category to discuss. Uh, who do you guys consider, and answer this however you want to. I'm not going to police it. 
But who would you guys consider best boxing trainer? What names come to mind when you think yeah, of the best one boxing I like. trainer? I, these last couple, these are the ones that I really enjoy. And, you know, mm-hmm. just thinking about reflecting on the boxing trainers and things like that. Um, so the ones that come to my mind, it's three in particular that stand out. And it's a difference between being a boxing trainer and a boxing coach because the boxing coach is more so our, um, like Angelo Dundee. He didn't really teach Ali anything. Ali had everything he needed. He just had to, you know, have a couple pointers and things like that once he was inside the ring. But Ali really knew everything. But the trainers actually teach. And I'm going to give you examples of the ones who I thought were the best that I've seen throughout the years. And why? So Emmanuel Stewart comes to mind at the most recent times because Emmanuel Stewart was really good with tall fighters. So he trained guys like Tommy Hearns, you know, the fighters, you see it in them when he trained them, that they were tall, aggressive, they uh, straight lead punches that he uh, implemented with those guys. And all, all the guys that he had typically went for KOs. So you had Hearns, you had uh, Klitschko, you had Lewis. And so, and you see how, like, once he got with those guys, he kind of resurrected their career, um, like Lennox Lewis, Klitschko, and then just him and Tommy Hearns was just a marriage that they had throughout Tommy um, Hearns' career. Another trainer that comes to mind is uh, Georgie Benton. And so with him, he, uh, he, what he was able to do, his, his prize pupil was Pernell Whitaker. But he fought, if you ever look at footage of Georgie Benton, he fought just like Pernell Whitaker. So he taught some of those tricks that you see uh, Pernell used to do. And so he taught um, guys like how to fight. You know, it, it appears to their opponent that they're out of range. Um, but at the same time, like they they within a distance. It's like an illusion where it looks like they're moving away, but they're still in striking distance. And so that's, that's something that he um, helped build within his fighters that he had. And he learned from, like, my top trainer of all time, which was Eddie Futch. And Eddie Futch was a guy who, he, and he even said it, it was a famous quote by him. I don't, can't remember the whole quote of it, but he, basically what he was saying is that fighters have different, um, they have differences and they have uh, different physical abilities. So it's up to him to go ahead and work with what they have to, you know, make what the skills that they have better. And so some of the guys that he trained, he trained George, I mean, Joe Frazier, Riddick Bowe, uh, Ken Norton, Larry Holmes, Michael Spink. So you see the different styles that he had. These are all champions that he had. Uh, Virgil Hill, Montel Griffin, Bob Foster, Alexis Arguello, uh, Wayne McCullough, Johnny Tapia. Overall, he had 22 different champions that he uh, trained. So to me, he's the top one of all time, but those other two are neck and neck. Hmm. Yeah, I would have had a similar answer as well. That's a, you know, boxing trainers, uh, that's a good question. But if I had to choose, uh, I'm a bit biased. You know, I'm a Detroit guy, so I got to go with my man, Emmanuel Stewart. Um, man, it's just to talk about someone who, who, who built the whole boxing community from the ground up in Detroit. Uh, even the crunk style, the crunk mentality, the gym fighters. You don't even have to be a, a great professional. Just the, the atmosphere inside the gym amongst anybody is very intense. Um, fighters would come to spar with his fighters. Like, you know, uh, I just read a, a, a Ring magazine article about uh, Macho Camacho. 
coming to, to making that trek to the to crunk gyms to, to spar with main stewards fighters. But even um, outside of that, a lot of fighters would go to to crunk to seek Stewart out as a, as a trainer. I mean, his resume speaks for itself. Uh, you have Tommy Hearns. He he, he would train De La Hoya at one point. Um, he he kind of brought Miguel Cotto back when everyone was was doubting him. He transformed Lennox Lewis. Um, before that, he led Oliver McCall to to defeating uh, Lennox Lewis. He had Gerald McClellan, um, my main man. If you don't know who that guy is, come up. Um, Adonis Stevenson uh, trained with uh, Manuel Stewart at one point. He started his career off. Even uh, Tyson Fury came through the crunk and was learning things from uh, Manuel Stewart. Um, his, his resume speaks for itself. Um, but also, yeah, just like Wilson said, George Benton, you know, great trainer. Eddie Fuchs, uh, great trainer. Uh, a lot of these trainers are legends, you know. Um, but if, if I had to, to, to choose a trainer, I would want, want on my side in my corner to lead me through any type of battle that uh, I, I, be, I believe would give any fighter the right tools they need and tell them what they need to hear. Is It would be Emmanuel Stewart. Has. Oh, yeah, and, and a tidbit. Uh, my aunt actually used to manage a physician office on the west side of Detroit, outside of Rosedale Park, uh, not too far from where Emmanuel Stewart uh, lived. And a lot of his fighters would come to, through her office for exams and things of that nature. So there's a little bit of history. I did not know about it at the time. I knew she ran that physician's office, but I didn't know uh, she was down crunk like that. So um, a bit of nostalgia and, and bias there. That's dope. Um, kind of similar to the last answer because I don't have as much history. This isn't like my answer answer. This is more so kind of like probably the last decade or so answer for me more so. Um, cause like I, I've heard of like Emmanuel Stewart, like all, you know, like, but he was kind of like on a tail end of training when I started to like really get into, into the sport, you know what I mean? So like, I could say his name, but it wouldn't be like genuine for me because I didn't really experience a ton of the fruits of his labor in real time. So for me, kind of going to going from starting from when I started to like seriously follow the sport. I, when I think of best boxing trainer, I think of like what did they raise their fighter from and what did their fighter become? So, you know, I think about, like, to a lesser extent, right, like Abel Sanchez and, and you know, what he kind of did with Triple G. Um, and then I think of, like, another criteria would be who who else has he has the, the trainer done that with? Like, has he brought up multiple fighters and kind of maximized their talent? And so, you know, I think of kind of – one of my thoughts was uh, – the Reynosos who in, in Canelo's camp, you know, what they've done with him, but they don't really have that, the pedigree, like Canelo's kind of like their first, like the person you could, you could really say sort of like kind of kick that off. I don't think their story is done, obviously, but they just haven't put that time in. So again, kind of it being the unofficial last decade kind of answer, I think of, Freddie Roach comes to mind for me personally in terms of like 
what he did with Pacquiao and, you know, some of the other fighters that he sort of uh, trained and how they came up. Um, so that would be kind of my answer along with all the disclaimers that I've, I've mentioned multiple times. But going into our last question, um, who do you guys feel is the best boxing commentator? And it could be of all time. It can be recent. It could be like, you know, current. Uh, however, I want to answer that. As far as the best boxing commentators of all time, I mean, you had some great ones. You had Steve Albert, Jim Gray, um, Larry Merchant. I consider him great. Larry Merchant's one of those guys that he's going to call for you to either you're going to love him or you're going to hate him, but you're interested. You know what I mean? He's going to cause a reaction out of him. So I respected that part of him, but over the years, those guys over at HBO just became too biased. Jim Blackley, the same thing. Um, Al Bernstein was a, a very knowledgeable commentator. Uh, my man, Ferdy Pacheco, was really good as well, the fight doctor. But, man, my all-time favorite commentator has to be Howard Cosell, man. You know, Howard Cosell, it's in this, the, those other guys are good, but they didn't have, and Brian Kenny is, is good too. I, I like Brian Kenny. But Howard Cosell just had that relationship with Ali that's a little bit different. So you saw him interacting with Ali and doing more interviews and stuff like that. And that camaraderie that they had with one another, him being a Jewish lawyer and Ali being this African American brass guy. And then he just has so many different memorable moments um, over the years. Down goes Frazier. And then when Ali was um, talking real crazy on TV, and he was asking him, oh, you're being extremely truculent. <laughs> Whatever truculent means, I, if that's good, I'm that. You know? So he just had memorable moments. you know. And then also uh, with Cosell, mm -hmm. um, you, know, you, you would think that at that time, the way race relations and stuff like that was that he was the first guy to actually call Muhammad Ali, Muhammad Ali. Other people weren't willing to do that. And so he asked them, what name do you prefer me to call you? Cassius Clay or Muhammad Ali. And so once he said that he wanted to be called Muhammad Ali, he went ahead and did this. So just for those reasons, um, it was just, you know, you watch the fight with Howard Cosell, sometimes, you know, to it, he, he talks so slow that by the time he's telling you the punch landed, you know, it's they done the other fighter done landed two or three punches, you know. So but it was cool, man. I, I just um I like everything that Howard brought to the table. So my favorite commentator of all time is Howard L Sad. Uh that's a question I have to think about. And I, I definitely agree with you, Will. It is Howard Cassell. The, the issues I didn't really grow up. Um Watching, you know, Howard Cassell, you know, those are things I had to look back on. What's interesting about him is his footprint is everywhere, like all throughout history with the Town Goes Frazier and, you know, the whole hairpiece thing. I mean, he he's an iconic figure. He's more than just a he, – he transcended being a commentator. He was a journalist. He was, a, you know, a, a sports personality in boxing. He was more than – well, a lot of guys could be, even though even guys try to even commentators try to emulate him more than that, you know, because he's almost like when you think of referees in big fights, uh, Richard Steele left his footprints, whether you see him there or not, you know. So I, th I think 
uh, Howard Cassell is just legendary. Um, I grew up watching the HBO team. I think uh, Larry Merchant, Jim Lampley, Lampley and, and you know, even sometimes Max Kellerman, they were golden for me. You know, they, they were opinionated. They said how they feel. Uh, I like a lot of what they said. Aside from that, that bang, bang, crazy stuff that uh, was uh, Larry, Jim Laffey was saying, or him or Larry Merchant. I mean, other than that, a lot of their stuff is very entertaining. You know, they're very engaging. Um, and I have to agree with Jim Gray. Jim Gray was entertained too. I, I, I looked up his piece with uh, his relationship with him and James Tony. You know, that stuff is golden uh, to me. So we have a lot of great commentators. I think no one will ever be as iconic as as uh, Cassell because he's just in the history books. His footprints is everywhere. You can't deny that. You know whether you whether you know who he is or not. If you if you watch any type of boxing before 1980, his footprints are there. Yeah. Um, for me, again. Going back to somewhat recent history, um, I've had kind of like a special place in my heart for the HBO commentating team. And, you know, I really miss them being in the boxing game, but, you know, I get it. But so when I think about, you know, who was on that team and who was kind of like the OG and who kind of like really who I used to just look forward to to hearing share their insight on it, um, I used to really like Jim Lampley, you know what I mean? Like being part of that team. And I used to always look forward to, yeah, the fights. Like, like I would be excited about the big fight, but I'd be even more excited if it was like an HBO fight. And, you know, he was part of that reason why, because I knew that I would kind of hear his perspective and I, I really enjoyed it. But um, other than that, I think that's kind of all I guess yes, yes. tonight. Let me ask you fellas this though before we wrap up though, is there any boxing right. coming on this weekend? It's a good question. I know that the uh yeah, Manuel and Arata is making his featherweight debut. It's gonna it's gonna make the federal featherweight division a little bit interesting. I think he'll be a I was hoping that he would fight uh a newie. That might still happen if, if Navarrete doesn't choose to stay at uh featherweight or you know I knew he moves up. But even then, I think, you know, Gary Russell found an opponent that you can finally get, you know. It's all good. So that's, that's good because if there's not, like, any big boxing matches coming up, then I could still be celebrating <laughs> the Lakers championship victory. So. Yeah, yeah, by the time you hear this, <laughs> I'm pretty sure the Lakers will have their ring by now, you know. That's, that's what we're predicting. So, yeah, only thing I got is – um. And these would already happen by the time the viewing public hears this. But uh, I just want to shout out my Muay Thai guys at the gym. They they went down to Myrtle Beach for a fight weekend. Three of my guys had fights. So if they listen to this, good luck to Drew. Good luck to Ock. Good luck to Noah and to Coach Jake. I'm hoping that by the time everybody else hears this, all three of them come back with, with the gold. They come back with W's. Obviously, no, you know, no damage, no long-term damage, and good health. Good luck for those guys and safe travels. Good luck to them, man. You know, hopefully one day, you know, I get a chance to go down there and check them out. 
And uh, root them on, you know. But on that note, it's time for us to wrap it up, baby. For sure. We out.